0: Hello, this is the Internet and Society podcast, where we discuss how the digital impacts our lives and shapes our future. My name is Anna Litvinenko, I am a communications scholar at Free University Berlin and currently a Weizenbaum Institute Fellow. Today we will talk about ethical challenges we face in the process of digitalization. And my guest is Joanna Bryson, who is professor of ethics and technology at the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Hello, Joanna, and thank you for taking your time.
1: Hello, nice
0: to be here. Joanna has been researching on the ethics of artificial intelligence for more than 20 years now. It was the topic of her PhD dissertation at MIT. She also co-authored the first UK national-level AI ethics policy, the UK's Principle of Robotics, in 2010. Again, great to have you as my guest. We now live in the situation of pandemic, and frankly speaking, it feels sometimes like living in an episode of Black Mirror. (laughs) So many restrictive measures are being introduced, everything is going online, and certainly some of these measures will become the new normal for our society. But unfortunately, we do not have time for, in this emergency mode, to debate about ethical challenges of these measures. What are, in your view, the most important ethical challenges we are facing right now?
1: Oh, well, there's so many places to go from that question, because now is not that well defined, right? So when you say now, you imply in the era of coronavirus, but in fact, of course, we are also in the era of the assault on democracy, in the era of the climate crisis. And I think the under-recognized thing is that we're in the middle of an era of the digital revolution. So a lot of people think what's changed is artificial intelligence. And of course, artificial intelligence is changing. We're creating more capacities to do intelligent autonomous actions with our machines and to categorize and enormous troves of data. And so that leads to one of the answers. Of course, one of the things people are debating very actively right now is what is a reasonable trade-off between privacy and security. Of course, for centuries, we've been debating that. But the answer will keep changing. It's not only that we keep getting more information, but that everybody's context is different. And I think that's one of the really interesting lessons I've been learning in the last few years. If you don't mind, I'm going to slightly correct what you said at the beginning. Yeah, of course. My PhD was indeed, or can be now, given a current lens, viewed as having been entirely about transparency for artificial intelligence. But at the time, I said I was doing systems engineering of artificial intelligence. So what I noticed was that people thought that if they just conceptualized AI correctly, it would automatically program itself. But of course, that never happens. And so I was trying to make it easier for people to build AI. And now the same tools that help developers also help regulators and ordinary citizens. And so with my PhD students over the last decade or so, we've been demonstrating that. But it's interesting because it really is a recasting of my original work. But while I was doing my PhD, I did also notice, and that's why there's a tension there, I did notice that people were weird about AI. (laughs) So at the time, what I noticed is people over-identified with robots if the robots happened to be shaped like a person. Now, the interesting thing is you could have a perfectly functional robot that looks like an insect and nobody worries about it. But you have a pile of motors that doesn't even work. It turns out it's not properly grounded, but nobody knows why it doesn't work. And people are saying, oh, it would be unethical to unplug that.
0: You know, even when you talk about artificial intelligence, many people are very aware of the ethical challenges it brings. But when you talk, for instance, about machine learning, it sounds kind of innocent, although it is an implication of AI.
1: Oh, of course. Some people think machine learning is creating challenges that, in fact, it's only documenting right? So we hadn't previously realized the extent to which, well, this is my most famous paper to date from 2017, that when we do really basic machine learning, there's really nothing up anybody's sleeve. If we just look at text, then we will get human implicit biases as well as our explicit intended meaning behind the words. And before that, people hadn't realized that those two things piggybacked. Right? They thought that implicit biases came from being evil, right? <laughs> or other people thought that it was, you know, some kind of weird masked version of explicit, you know, like somebody told you something when you're a child and you forgot. But in fact, we're all being told constantly that it's more probable that a woman's in a kitchen than that a man's in the kitchen, and that it's more probable that a man's a programmer than that a woman's a programmer, just because we hear the programmer's name was Mark. And then that automatically sets a little tick in a box somebody somewhere. And it doesn't matter if you're a child or if you're a machine learning program, you're going to pick up on the regularity that you see more men's names next to programmer. So anyway, yeah, machine learning is a part of it. The fact that we can go through and categorize data this way does remove our anonymity. So we have serious, serious governance challenges about How do we create a room to be able to make mistakes, to be able to invent multiple persona and experiment with them? How do we have freedom of thought if we don't have privacy anymore? And this is something we are debating all the time. I would disagree, though, that we don't have enough time. Maybe we never have enough time. That's the human condition. But even though we have less time as individuals because things seem to be moving faster, we have more individuals thinking about this. So it is incredible the debate that's happening around these issues right now, the race, the technological races to get it right and then to convince governments to use the correct technological solutions. So I wouldn't say that we're really losing. I think that we are making some amazing achievements, actually. And I'm amazed watching things, you know, floating by on Twitter and email lists and everything else.
0: Yeah, that's optimistic. But I do see that the restrictive measures which are being implemented also in democratic states, digital surveillance mechanisms that are being, for instance, copied from China, like tracking people via their smartphones with QR codes, all these might have long term outcomes, and the history shows us that if we give up some rights, it is hard to win them back. And I guess that in some countries, these measures will become the new normal. You mentioned previously that we give up anyway more and more of our privacy today. And I think that part of the problem is also the lack of awareness of people that they are giving up their rights and you cannot force people to fight for their rights if they do not even recognize it as a problem.
1: Yeah, I didn't mean to be overly optimistic. I was just saying that there was more than one narrative going on. So I do absolutely think that what we do matters. It isn't clear who is going to win, which technologies will be put in place, which policies will be put in place. And as you say, different countries will roll things back at different rates. And some things I don't think we can roll back. So I think we can't go to a point where we no longer have these digital transcriptions of our lives. Even if we make them illegal, as we have done in the EU, we have to be aware of the fact that people are probably maintaining them somewhere. So what we have to do is be vigilant. We have to go out and basically make it illegal to act on that action and then set up They're calling them observatories, but basically regulatory bodies to notice when there's been a misuse of data. So I think there has to be a new and very different ongoing efforts to protect us and to protect, as I said, this freedom of thought, the freedom of opinion. Otherwise, it's not just about human flourishing and just. I mean, that's the main point, of course. But some people don't see that, again, if they depending on what kind of brutalist education they received. But even if you only think economically, you have to realize that when you enforce this totalitarian fear on people, that of course you get less innovation. And so then you can fall behind your neighbors who are not as stupid as you are about how they enact that digital privacy. But I do worry that people can get false senses of security. And in particular, there's this phenomenon, at least in America, of mobbing. Um, So you can mob people online, get them to step down, get them to resign, whatever. And then people think, oh, look, we can solve this problem. And it's like, that didn't solve the problem. It just pushed it underground, right? So a lot of people think that they're solving problems just because the problems don't get talked about anymore. And that is so not solving the problem. It does send some kind of a signal so that corporations worry about, and again, try to hide their own capacities. I believe they have capacities that they're hiding. Because they realized that if they used those kinds of skills, that they would lose a huge access to market. We can think about that also in terms of governments, which governments will and won't be permitted. I mean, one of the big problems that we see when we look at the autocratic tendencies, the people who are supporting them, part of it has to do with the fact that they already felt strongly that they were losing. So there's a destructive, when you feel that, that you aren't able to construct public goods, when you aren't able to build a system under which you can thrive, then a lot of people switch to a more competitive strategy and try to make sure that nobody else is doing better either. And in a way, that makes sense because you're trying to convince the opposition that, well, I mean, you may not intellectually, you may just hate them. But what this does on the meta level is it convinces people that they have to bring everybody
0: along. On the other hand, there are some examples of authoritarian modernization in Asia and other authoritarian regimes perceive them as a role model where they use advantages of big data to fuel innovations. And we used to think that innovations thrive in democracies where there is freedom of speech. But if you have access to the data of citizens, you can have feedback of people in another way and you can actually adjust and innovate a system based on digital surveillance Don't you think it can give authoritarian regimes a competitive advantage?
1: So there's some really interesting questions to be asked there. And of course, this is one of the things that we will see, right? We'll see from history what the actual outcomes are. I think it's important, again, in the era of coronavirus, that we don't only look at China. We also look at South Korea, at Taiwan, at Singapore and Germany. A lot of people are saying, why is it that Germany has such a low death rate? We still have a very high infection rate. Part of that may very well be because people are using the right level of a sort of rule following and common sense combined. But also, of course, there was actually what Angela Merkel used to say was an oversupply of hospital beds, so we don't have the same problems with uh, the peaks. But anyway, Singapore is, of course, also an autocracy, and South Korea has gone through interesting (laughs) areas. Obviously, Taiwan has its interesting problems. But the point is that nobody ever immigrates to China. Well, not nobody, but hardly anyone. It's not a place people want to live. And they have done amazing, interesting things. They got a lot farther than the Soviet Union, looking at the mistakes of the Soviet Union. So they have figured out ways to harness and enthuse entrepreneurs. But at the same time, they still have these issues. And I've heard that they've used some pretty coercive measures. It's not just that they said, hey, here's a huge lab to bring people back to work on AI. So they're still reliant on there being another place that their citizens go and get educated. have these innovative ideas, and then they bring them back from these other places. You know, for a while, we thought that it was liberalizing a little bit, but the last four years have been uh, very disappointing with respect to Xi and his ideology.
0: So we've talked about uh, surveillance measures used by the state, but I would also like to talk about digital surveillance used by platforms, what Zhezhana Zubov calls surveillance capitalism. As you mentioned previously, we give up more and more of our data and our privacy to tech platforms. On the one hand, we feel empowered by the services provided by Facebook or Google, and uh, the majority of them are provided for free. But on the other hand, we are in fact disempowered because we do not have influence on the way these platform societies are organized. Do you think there is a way for society to take back control over the decision-making process in the case of platforms?
1: I think there's a lot of really interesting questions, again, kind of folded into one assumption there. (laughs) So what happens? First of all, do we get to use these products for free? No, I would say what we're doing is we're bartering. We're bartering data. And I don't think it's true that we have no control. We get to choose who we barter data with. So we get to choose which information we have, how we spend our time, what we upload. Are we going to focus on pictures? Are we going to focus on silly videos that are very carefully directed, you know? And of course, all of these things are still giving certain kinds of commonality in terms of social networks, who we choose to entertain, things like that. There is some kind of choice, and some people might feel like they have more choice over their social media platform than they do over their government, because of course, you can only be officially resident of one place. One of the things I'm really interested in, actually, is the interaction between uh, corporations and government. So actually, I, I should ask you, I've been having trouble finding the source of this quote. I actually heard an economist say, That historically, the belief about the best way to overcome corruption is to have a reasonable number of mid-sized companies, not gigantic. They keep track of each other and they keep track of the government. And the government is the mechanism, it's the enforcement. So it also keeps track of all of them. But that there's some kind of mutualism because, of course, corporations and governments both can be corrupted. Now, there's very good reasons why a lot of corporations are large and transnational. There's some bad reasons, too. I think it is like uh, running away and not inadequate regulation in some areas. But given that it makes sense for certain kinds of businesses to have boundaries larger than it makes sense to have governments have boundaries, then how is it that we update that model? And it would be really interesting to think is can the desire to have access to, say, Google and Apple products alter the level of corruption inside of a government, like the way trade can alter, trade between nations? So now it's trade with a transnational corporation. So I think there hasn't been enough consideration about exactly how much the model has updated. I think the reason is that the nations were originally defensive about this, but it's never not going to matter who your neighbors are. It always, always matters. We always have collective issues like the water supply, the fire, the garbage collection, the air pollution. There's so many reasons national governments will always matter, or at least geographically localized governments are always going to matter. But also, these transnational corporations are increasingly, and I think for the last 150 years, have been increasingly mattering. And we haven't got a good governance framework for that interaction.
0: And Coming back to what you said first, that we have a choice, do we really? There are these big four US tech companies, and yes, theoretically, you can choose to go to some minor social networking platform, but nobody of your friends will be there, or go to a Chinese one. But in the end, we have only two countries where the major platforms are based. And speaking about choice, we also shouldn't forget about algorithms, which lead us. So in the end, how conscious can our choice be?
1: Okay, I'm going to leave aside the fact that propaganda has been altering both our political outcomes, again, for centuries. The SLC, the company that owned Cambridge Analytica, which was using Facebook specifically as a vector, they've been in business for 30 years and we've been using them. The West have been using them to alter the outcomes in Central Asia and Africa. So, you know, propaganda is nothing new. And there's a great set of discussions, which I don't think we're going to have time for about, you know, the, you know, how do you get the trade-offs of freedom there? But I just want to come back to this choice argument. So I agree that there may not be adequate choice. And there's been a discussion of whether we need to airbus some of the platforms when we recognize that what they do is important. I also think that we should possibly have not allowed Google to mothball Google+. Plus because we needed that option. Even though hardly anyone chose the option, it was another way for people to communicate. I don't think we should undervalue the fact that Facebook can't hire programmers right now because it looks so bad, right? You know, And that does have an impact that they care about. People have decided that Google's evil and certainly it's done some things it shouldn't have done. We have to keep a harness on that. But I was just seeing somebody talking about you know this enormous amount of energy this technology requires. And Google is the only one of the big ones that has more than half of its energy coming from renewables. Microsoft is like really, truly engaging with transnational efforts at security, and they seem to understand better what's going on politically at that level. And then at the same time, they're just using the same power that everybody in America gets. They're just taking that off the shelf and they don't see it part of their duty to worry about things like sustainability. Or maybe they don't see that they need to be exceptional. So maybe they're just refusing to do philanthropy. But that's a little odd, again, from the Gates administration. (laughs) So I think we have these different things that we can hold them to account. And we can say, a lot of people don't use Amazon. There are people that use Amazon, but a lot of people don't. And again, partly because it's localized, but partly because you could really see the impact on your local community of the competition. That is a conscious choice that people make. And I think that Microsoft has put a lot of effort into Bing, even though it gets like one-tenth of the traffic, but just so there is an alternative to Google. And I realize if you're sitting in Berlin or Kamchatka, you could say, how is this a choice? They're they're just two American companies. But again, if you look at even the culture, like Apple doesn't vaccinate their children, and Google does. There are big differences, and I kind of trust Apple more, but I freak out about the fact that they're non-vaccinated. Of course, that's part of why Steve Jobs died. He had a treatable cancer, but he refused to go with mainstream medicine. So there is variation, it would be good if we had more variation.
0: Some of the conversation about the challenges of governance, you talked about the digital revolution we are facing. In your chapter on the future of AI's impact for society for the book Towards a New Enlightenment, a Transcendent Decade, I love the title by the way, (laughs) you mentioned that revolutions in technology usually require subsequent revolutions in governance, as it was the case with the industrial revolution in the 19th century, for instance. You've talked now a lot about different aspects of the changes we need. Could you sum it up? What should be the revolution in governance today? Maybe also in our thinking, the approach that could help us adjusting democracies to this digital revolution?
1: Well, I think there's never going to be a uh, single revolution, of course. But I do think that the next step that we really need to take is to figure out how to cooperatively between the geographically based governments partition and negotiate with both the revenues derived from but also what is admissible and permissible by these transnational corporations, what they can and can't do if they want to have access to citizens. And this may sound like a familiar idea because it's what the GDPR is. So I think that the EU has already set a first step. And then what we've seen is that the corporations, despite the fact that GDPR massively benefited them, they stupidly have been resisting the digital tax, they just think, oh, that's the thing you automatically resist rather than thinking, okay, how do we cooperate on this? When do we start trusting uh, some organization? But anyway, what they did was they blocked forward motion by picking off two of the European countries, Luxembourg and Ireland. I think the right solution is to make the unions of governments a little more agile, too. You know, the EU is great. Again, it's a geographically contiguous group. I understand what it's doing, but they should be okay. Yeah, okay, Luxembourg and Ireland want out, Indonesia and Malaysia, and you know, maybe even the United States want in. I've heard American people say, if you can help us figure out how to get more taxes out of those guys, we would be totally happy to share. <laughs> you know, it's really not as who's us and who's them it's not as obvious as some people think. And I think the most important thing to realize is we shouldn't be talking about this as a digital tax. That was a mistake. If you notice, if you read back, listen back to what I was saying before, it's about transnational. Actually, the digital, the people, all these people that have platforms, their entire business model is a large number of thriving, well-educated people with money in their pocket that you can get these microtransactions off of them, that you can make so much money because you have billions of people that you're doing good for, that you're providing with services. So they have interests aligned with liberal democracies. What i'm trying to do is to persuade them it isn't about an attack it's about how do we get to a point where we can provide a challenge to china we don't want to live somewhere where nobody wants to live okay it's, that's a tautology all right so so how can we construct something that works better and i'd be very happy to work with china on that too we'd like to make a nicer place to be too right everybody is going to have different solutions we need diversities of solutions But there are some solutions that may be better than others, and then we should see that spread.
0: It seems like we are standing at the crossroads at some bifurcation point, and we have to make some important decisions where it all goes. Another topic I would like to discuss with you, and I'm sure it comes up pretty often when you talk about AI, About superintelligence substituting people. (laughs) There has been a lot of talk for a long time already about, for instance, substituting doctors by AI, which can be even more precise and effective in diagnostic, for instance. Do you think that this trend will be reinforced with the pandemic? If we get used more to communication without physical contact, then what's the difference if we will have AGI, super intelligent programs as teachers, doctors, etc.? Is it a realistic scenario and what will it do to our society?
1: I think it is a threat. You can take the uh, limit case and expect it to be like the Matrix, (laughs) sort of. But again, it's something that we're already experiencing. So what you see, for example, in America is the polarizing, the the populist candidates telling the people that live very sparsely distributed that, you know, don't go to Europe, don't go to the cities, those places are terrible, you wouldn't want what they have, even though there's lots of really good stuff there. But we don't want them to know that. So you have people that are living these more deprived lives, and don't even know that there's actually quite easily to get better lives. Although, of course, some people do prefer that. And there's always been some people that preferred isolation. I do think there's going to be consolidation. I think you're right. I think right now, a lot of people are looking at, you know, people like us, academics, and they're saying, oh, those guys are more important than we are because, you know, they're getting paid and we aren't getting paid. Well, if they're in America, in Europe, of course, the government is saying, you guys matter, you're people, and we care. But in fact, it's like the quality of life people, those are the other people that are producing the stuff that makes life worthwhile. I shouldn't say it. I think universities are pretty cool, too, and entertaining as well as useful, but... The point is that, as you mentioned, actually, in some ways, the fact that we can keep doing our job without social interaction does indicate our vulnerability. Well, I don't even believe that either. (laughs) So yes, it turns out there's some things you can do physically and some things you can't do physically. But again, this whole idea of having billions of minds that are each creating their own model, that are each collecting their own set of data, their own experiences, their own lived realities, their own books that they've chosen to read, their own Twitter accounts they choose to follow. Like every little thing makes you an individual. And then we compete and we try to get attention and some of the best ideas spread, like I mentioned. So this is a process I don't think it's going to end just because there's computers. But I do worry that some people will be sold inferior products And because either they just are afraid of socializing or that they don't have opportunity to socialize, they don't realize they're getting inferior products. It's just like the people who are getting those really, really awful apples just because they ship better instead of getting the nice apples, you know? And then it becomes a pervasive part of society. And it's taken us decades to get back to where, oh, you can go out and get the fancy apples again if you choose to spend money that way, right? But for a while, it wasn't even an option. Again, every time we realize that, you know, the hipster movement or whatever, that recognizing that there are lots of ways to enjoy the quality of life is also an important thing that we need to support, that we need to let people choose. Do I want not to spend money on food, but rather to spend money on entertainment? Or, yeah, do we say, oh, well, food is my entertainment, right? We can't force everybody to like all arts. That doesn't make sense. Again, we're individuating it's important to our society that we have do- lots and lots of differences and lots of different ideas. I do have concerns about how technology is altering employment, but it isn't that all the jobs are going to go away. It isn't that people are suddenly going to not want the kind of care. And one of the core things about care from a doctor is that the doctor's is responsible. So if we don't have doctors involved, we also don't have accountability as well as not having like some fundamental human therapy. But for a lot of people, in fact, we're working on this. That's one of my later meetings today, which we are going to have to wrap up and get to. For a lot of people, they don't have access to the best medical care right now. And so there's an interesting question of if we give them this access now, does that increase colonialism, create a bipartite, or is that a way of leveling things out or both? <laughs> you know, it's not always easy to, to take that apart. Yeah, there
0: are always two sides of the medal.
1: Usually more. <laughs>
0: Yes, right. It's usually more. It's not even a metal. It's some complex geometric object. (laughs) Dear Joanna, thank you very much for the great talk and please stay healthy. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. This was the Internet and Society podcast. You can follow us on all the main podcast platforms. Thank you for listening. Please stay healthy and tune in for the next episode in two weeks.